The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 102, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. My enemies reproach me all the day long. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever, and the remembrance of your name to all generations. You will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This will be written for a generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to release those appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloth. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. Where was that psalm particularly cited in the New Testament? Anybody? Book of Hebrews. We already went through it. Book of Hebrews. He cited it again and again through the earlier chapters of Hebrews. Okay, we're in Numbers 11. We're in verses 16 through 25, and this is entitled, Be Careful What You Ask For. Verse 16, so the Lord said, these are a lot of verses, okay, they're going to go really quickly. Unlike some sermons where you have three verses and it lasts the whole sermon, all of these together will go very quickly. So the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and put the same upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. 
Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat to eat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come out of Egypt? And Moses said, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot, yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say to you will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. Then the people stayed up all day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kivrut Hata'ava, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. From Kivrut Hata'ava, the people moved to Chazarot, and camped at Chazarot. A person becomes a true Christian by having faith in Christ. The requirement is given, and when it is met, he becomes a part of that holy body. But unless you think of it too highly of yourself, you have to admit that you aren't the perfect Christian. And in fact, every one of us is on a different level. Still speaking of saved believers, there are some very faithful souls, and there is any degree below that, right down to those who have fallen back into the world's way, having even forgotten the commitment that they made. If you don't believe that, go read 2 Peter 1, verse 9. As Christians, we can find sufficiency in the Lord, or we can keep looking back to the world, hoping to find delight or satisfaction in something else. I'm not opposed, for example, for people buying a lottery ticket, especially when the jackpot gets up to billions of dollars. A $2 investment could pay off rather well there. But there are people, including Christians, that seem to lust after the lottery or the next big thing at work, like a promotion or the next faster car that they can buy. Having any of these or countless other things is not wrong in and of itself. 
It is the attitude concerning those things that can be and usually is wrong. Is it wrong to eat quail? Is it wrong to think, gee, I'd like to have quail for dinner? No, that's not wrong at all. But it would be wrong for someone to say, ever since I became a Christian, I haven't been able to afford a single quail for dinner. I used to have quail all the time. This deal stinks. It's not the quail. It's the attitude. Where we find our ultimate sufficiency is where we will find our fullest joy. If we really love quail, even if it is completely unavailable, but we are still content in Christ, then it doesn't matter if we don't have quail. Our text verse comes from Psalm 78. It's verses 26 through 28. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sands of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwellings. The person who says, I can afford the lottery ticket, and this should be fun to see what happens, is in a completely different position than the person who says, I sure hope I win the lottery that will pay off all of my bills. If you have bills you can't deal with, guess what? The last thing you need to do is to be buying lottery tickets. However, I've got a guy that takes care of Davidson's Drugs, where I work at every morning, right? It's one of the four part-time jobs I have. And at Christmas and on my birthday, he always buys me a lottery ticket. And guess what? Christmas, I got 20 bucks, right? So guess what he's going to get on New Year's? That's right, he's a Jew. I wouldn't get him a Christmas present because that wouldn't be right. But we do this with each other. We're just having fun. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? I want you to understand, if you cannot afford a lottery ticket, don't buy one. It's not a way of getting rich. It's a way of losing everything, okay? Normally, the people who can afford them least are the people who spend the most on them. When they get what they ask for, it will almost always turn into a curse. The number of lottery winners who are in worse shape than before they won is huge. They weren't responsible before they had the money, and they won't be responsible after they get it. They got what they asked for, and it did not profit them at all. Today, we will see a group of people who are unsatisfied with that which is of the highest value of all. In turn, their hearts turn back to what they first had, not realizing that what they want will never satisfy. If you can't be satisfied in the one who made the quail, you sure won't be satisfied with the quail that he made. Let us remember that only the Lord can truly fill every need and desire that we have. Anything else is going to disappoint. This is one of the important lessons to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three separate thoughts for you today. The first is, you shall eat meat. It's verses 16 through 22. Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, it was in the preceding verses that Moses, overwhelmed with his duties and responsibilities, said that he was not able to bear all the people alone. He simply could not foresee any relief from the box in which he found himself, and so he poured out his anguish before the Lord. It is with this context being understood that we come to these words now. Rather than, so the Lord spoke to Moses, it says, so the Lord said to Moses. As we have seen in the past, the subtle change in wording from Deber spoke to Amar said indicates that the task requires a partnership and people working together. 
That may seem like trifling, but it is not. Verse 16 continues, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them. Here we have two different distinctions being made. The first are the zakain, or elders. The word comes from zakan, or a beard. It thus signifies someone who is old, recognizable because of his pronounced beard. Secondly, they are noted as shoterim, or officers. This word comes from an unused root, which probably signifies to write. Thus, they were old men who were also some type of magistrate or scribe. The only other time that this word has been used was way back in Exodus chapter 5. The Lord is directing Moses to gather together 70 of such advanced and skilled men. They have years of experience, and they have skills already developed to conduct necessary affairs to bear authority over others. The Lord is not asking simply for Moses to gather together friends, but truly qualified men. Of the number 70, and we've done this before, but every time we come to a number in the Bible, you want to understand its meaning because it is always consistent. Of the number 70, Bollinger defines it as spiritual order carried out with all spiritual power and significance. Both spirit and order are greatly emphasized. The very context of the passage confirms this as being exactly what the number identifies. The 70 here in this verse are said to have been later used as the basis for the number which formed the Sanhedrin in Israel, 70 men with a leader like Moses appointed over them. It is also the same number that Jesus sent forth in Luke 10 verse 1. He was making a point there. He's sending 70 people. He's their leader. He was showing that he is the greater Moses. These hints will show up again and again and again, especially in the books of Moses. Verse 16 continues, bring them to the tabernacle of meeting that they may stand there with you. The Lord has completely overlooked the plea of Moses, which closed out the verses in the previous sermon. Moses had said, if you treat me like this, Please kill me here and now if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Instead of rebuking Moses, he simply redirects him to a new path which will correct Moses' inability to handle the congregation by himself. This is evident because these men are being brought forward to the tent of meeting to stand together with Moses. This is the place of ordination as much as it is the place of seeking God's mercy. That has been seen in the ordination of the priests in the book of Leviticus. Now a new group is set to be ordained for a new purpose. Verse 17, then I will come down and talk with you there. The Lord is already speaking to Moses, and so this seems like a superfluous statement. But this is not an unnecessary set of words. First, it is an act of honor to Moses that he would be addressed while these men were there. The Lord is setting him apart even in the act of raising up those who stood around him. Secondly, the fact that the Lord will speak to Moses while the leaders are at the tent of meeting is an assurance that they are acceptable to be there. As the Lord said in the past, none shall appear before me empty-handed, and yet they have not been asked to bring anything but themselves before the Lord. Instead of presenting a gift, they are presenting themselves, and it is they who will be given something. Verse 17 continues, I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same upon them. There is one spirit, and he is indivisible. What is being conveyed here is not that the spirit upon Moses will be lessened, but that the gifts which Moses is endowed with will likewise be endowed to these men in whatever measure the Lord determined. This is confirmed by Paul's words, which say, There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. 
It is the Lord who distributes to each one individually as he wills. He had willed to have his spirit rest upon Moses in certain gifts, and now he would allow that same spirit to rest upon these men. Just as the lamp in the tabernacle was lit, one lamp to the next without diminishing the light of the first lamp, so these men will receive the spiritual gifts of Moses without diminishing his. There is one fountain from which the spirit proceeds. That fountain will now be directed to flow to these men. Verse 17 going on, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not bear it yourself alone. With the spirit imparted to them, the heavy burden which overwhelmed Moses would be relieved. That spiritual order carried out with all spiritual power and significance, as explained by Bollinger, would be sufficient to handle the burden so that Moses will never ask the Lord to take his life again. Verse 18, then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. In Exodus 19, the Lord instructed that the people consecrate themselves before his appearance to him on Sinai when he gave them the Ten Commandments. In Jeremiah 12, verse 3, the prophet asked the Lord to consecrate or prepare the people for the day of slaughter. The idea here is prepare to meet your God in the way that he determines. In this case, it is at the same time a mercy bestowed upon Moses, and it is also a judgment to be wrought upon the people. That is why the two accounts are interlaced as they are. That this is judgment upon them is next scene. Verse 18 continues, For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. The Lord heard their weeping, but it was a weeping of complaint, where verse 10 said, The anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. They openly and directly lied when they said, It was well with us in Egypt. They may have had meat to eat, but things were not well with them. It is they who cried out in their bondage. And it is God who responded to their cries. They had meat while in bondage. Now they have no meat while in freedom. To show them how sinful their complaining is, he will show them the difference between the two. Verse 18 continues. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Their complaints were directed against the Lord. And in judgment, he would give them what they asked for and more. Verse 19. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days. In Exodus 16, the Lord sent quail to the people along with the manna. That appears to have been a one-day occurrence, and it was prior to the giving of the law. Despite complaining, they had not yet been given the law, and so the Lord graciously provided for them in their complaints. Now, after the law is given, he will righteously give them what they ask for in their complaints as judgment upon them. The counting of the days in an upward manner indicates this. You got one day, you got two days, you got five days, you got 10 days, you got 20 days, verse 20, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Whether the quail came for 30 days or whether they were given enough quail to last them for 30 days, the Lord has promised that they would have quail sufficient for 30 days of meals. It would be such a vast amount that they would overindulge in it and come to loathe it. The words, until it comes out of your nostrils, are probably both metaphorically and literally spoken. Though at the time Moses conveyed the words to them, they would have taken it as metaphorically. Until you start throwing up and then they realize that this is literally true. Verse 20 continues, because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? The idea here is that the Lord will remind them exactly why they came up out of Egypt. 
with the memory of the meat they ate wiped away because of it becoming so distasteful to them, they would no longer look back on what was positive, but instead would only remember what was negative. The bondage of Egypt would hopefully be seen for what it rightly was. And so the giving of the quail in this manner is a necessary step in order to cut the people's dependency on desiring that which could never satisfy. Verse 21, and Moses said, the people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. He's incredulous. It's clear that he believes what he just heard, but it would require a miracle. This is also one of those verses that shows that this was not recorded by some later writer. Instead of citing the exact number from the census, or instead of rounding that number up and including all of the Levites, or even giving a superlative number which included all of the women and children, Moses speaks out the number of those counted already as for warfare, and he rounds the number down. This would hardly be what a later writer would record. And despite this, the amount of meat would take to feed only 600,000 would be huge. Multiply that times 30 days, and what would be needed? Verse 22, shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? Scholars here sharply chide Moses for failing to believe. Now, that may be true to some point, but Moses has not disbelieved. He only cannot understand how it could otherwise come about. They had flocks and herds. His question is whether that is the Lord's remedy for it. If so, that would totally deplete their supply. What he asks reflects the words of the apostles who questioned Jesus at the time of the feeding of the 5,000. They asked, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? In both, they are looking at what is expected of them more than how the Lord would otherwise resolve the matter apart from them. The second option is then explicitly stated by Moses. Verse 22 continues, Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? The very fact that Moses asked this indicates that he knows it cannot happen apart from God. They are nowhere near the sea. And so it is something that would be truly miraculous if it did occur. He has been told to tell the people that they will eat meat for a month. And he wants to be able to explain how when he goes to them. The stress of the complaints and the pressure of the burden on him causes him to want more than just the word that it will happen, but an explanation of how it will come about too. But the Lord doesn't give that. He simply proclaims that his word will be realized. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will make it evident in the works I do. Be confident that as in this earth you trod, I have given sufficient evidence to you. I prevailed over the law, which no one else could do. I showed them that I am the Holy One of Israel. And then I went to Calvary's cross for you. And so of my works, you are to tell. I proved my sinless life when I broke death's chains. In the resurrection, I proved that I have set you free. Now the only thing which remains is that you reach out your heart and receive me. Our second thought today is, and the spirit rested. It's verses 23 through 30. Verse 23, and the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. It does not say arm. It says hand. If your Bible says arm, please make a note of that. Has the Lord's hand been shortened? The hand is what provides. It is what gives out. It is what demonstrates ability to sustain. The Lord rhetorically asks if his ability to provide and keep on providing has somehow become limited. The obvious answer is no. 
It doesn't matter how he will provide. The fact that he has spoken means that he will provide. Moses needs to simply accept him at his word and to trust that his word is true. And apparently he does. Verse 24, so Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. The words, so Moses went out, indicate that he had been conversing with the Lord in the tent of meeting. After that, he passed on all of what the Lord had said and gathered those chosen as elders together, placing them, as it says, around the tent. This probably means in a semicircle in front of the tent, facing its front. Verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud. The cloud, which remained above the spot where the mercy seat was within the tabernacle, physically moved from there to confirm that his presence was absolutely there with them in what was about to occur. There could be no mistake that what would come about was purposeful. From there, verse 25 goes on and spoke to him. This is exactly what he said he would do in verse 17. It confirms that Moses is still set apart from those who are about to receive the Spirit. And it shows that the men are accepted before the Lord by the invitation of Moses. The speaking of the Lord to Moses is a foreshadowing of what is recorded concerning Jesus in relation to those with him in John chapter 12. Here's what it says. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. You're seeing the patterns happening time and time again. Moses is being shown in relation to Jesus. And then the book of Hebrews explains Jesus as the greater Moses, the greater tabernacle, the greater high priest, the greater everything. Verse 25 continues, and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. Again, as he said he would do, the Lord performs his word. Each step is in confirmation of his words to Moses, and it is a purposeful event which could not otherwise be denied by any who saw it occur. Verse 25 going on, and it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Here's the first use of the verb nava or prophesy in the Bible. It comes from the noun navi or prophet. We're not told what they prophesied, and so for us it does not matter what they said or what they sang. It simply indicates an uttering forth of praise of or of the will of God. What matters is that the same spirit rested on all, demonstrating that the spirit that was upon Moses was sufficient to meet the challenges he faced, even if he was not. Now, that same spirit would be with the 70 who would work with Moses to meet the challenges as a united whole. That they never prophesied again simply means that they were not called to be prophets. Instead, they were called to be assistants to the prophet. The spirit is one, and he apportions the gifts according to his wisdom. I wish people in the church would learn that. Verse 26, but two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. Then the spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. The name Eldad means whom God loves. In essence, beloved of God. Medad means beloved. A written notice, as the Hebrew indicates, had been made for them to come. However, and without giving the reason for it, they were still in the camp. But they were chosen, and the Spirit rested upon them. 
just as among the others. This was sufficient to show that the Lord was not constrained to the area of the tabernacle, just as Ezekiel's calling showed that the Lord was not constrained to the area of Israel. Likewise, the book of Acts shows that the Lord is not constrained to any location or any people group, but that his spirit extends beyond any supposed borders, which we tend to mentally impose on him. Why is that important? Because a lot of Jews reject the book of Daniel because it was written outside of the land of Israel. So they say, well, that's not really so inspired. That is completely foreign to the concept of the Bible. The Lord is everywhere. He is the sovereign creator of this universe. The book of Acts, if nothing else, especially Acts chapter 7, shows us this. The names of these men seem to have been especially chosen by the Lord to show that whom God loves and those who are his beloved are never out of reach of the bestowal of his spirit. As they're the only two named elders, they are thus representative of all of them. Verse 27, and a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. The Hebrew says, and the young man. If your Bible doesn't have the article in there, please add it. It doesn't say who he is, but he is singled out by the definite article. However, it is likely that it is Joshua. The same term, na'ar, or young man, is used of him in Exodus 33, verse 11, which was written within the past year. Regardless of his actual age, he is considered a young man in relation to Moses. What may have happened is that Joshua, being Moses' assistant, was the one who was sent out with the written names of the 70 chosen men. 68 had arrived, and Eldad and Madad were probably the last on the list. Before they even had a chance to gather themselves together and head to the tabernacle, the Spirit came down upon them. In seeing this, he was so concerned about what had taken place that he made a beeline for Moses to tell him what was going on. This seems likely because verse 28. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. The Hebrew does not say one of his choice men. It says he was Moses' assistant from his youth. The verse explains the previous verse. Joshua had been Moses' assistant from his youth, and he is still a young man who preciously guarded the relationship, desiring Moses to be held in proper esteem. Just so you know, translators struggle with translations. Some words can mean the same thing or different things all the way through the Old and New Testaments. That's why at the beginning of the King James Version, they say a multitude of translations is profitable for understanding the sense of scriptures because they say some words and phrases are interspersed throughout scripture that we do not know. And because of that, one person gives his rendering, another person gives his, and it may be this and not the other. Now, that's a paraphrase of what they said, but it's very close to what they said. We sometimes have translations which are not correct, and we need to use the internal readings of the Bible to understand what is being said. It does say, as I rendered, and not as the New King James Version rendered. Go through lots of versions of the Bible, check the Hebrew, and show yourself approved in what you're reading. For these people to be in the camp prophesying, Joshua must have thought that it disparaged Moses' authority in the eyes of the people. The same general thing happened at the time of Jesus' ministry, as is recorded in Mark 9. Here's what it says. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. 
For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. At all times, one must contemplate who he is looking to honor. In the end, it is all about the Lord, above all else that deserves that from us. Moses understood Joshua's misguided passion, and he gently rebukes him for it. Verse 29, then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Moses knew that Joshua was jealous of the gifts bestowed upon the men, possibly because he had been Moses' assistant, and yet he did not receive the spirit. But more directly, because he was Moses' assistant, he wanted Moses' authority to not be diminished. But Moses felt otherwise. Verse 29 going on, Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses was so far from having an ego that he would have enjoyed full fellowship in the Lord with all of the Lord's people. And in fact, it would have been a relief for him. The very grief he faced and which had led him to the point of despair would be fully lifted from him if this was the case. One cannot help to think that his plea here is actually given as a foretaste of what would occur in the giving of the new covenant in Christ. His words are a hopeful anticipation of a time when this would come to pass. Sadly, however, though all of the Lord's people have received of his spirit, we still, more often than not, do our best to run our lives apart from him. Even Moses will be found to do so in the pages ahead. None of us, none of us are exempt from listening to our own selves and shutting out the word of the Lord and the leading of the Spirit. Verse 30, then Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. This is the last time that the role of these elders is mentioned. We have no idea how they assisted Moses or under what circumstances. The account itself stands as a witness to the fact that it happened because Moses felt unable to bear the weight of the people of the camp alone. And yet, it testifies to the fact that the Spirit, whether alone on Moses or spread out among many, was sufficient to the task. With the matter settled, the men returned to the camp to consecrate themselves for the next day as instructed. What we have in these verses is a snapshot of Christ's ministry. He had, in the first 15 verses of this chapter, been pictured in the manna. The people had rejected that and had lusted after other flesh. That was reflective of Christ's words in John 6:27. He told the people not to labor for food which perishes, but for the food, meaning himself, which endures to everlasting life. He is the manna pictured in the wilderness. Israel had rejected that and wanted something else, something temporary, something corruptible. During that same earthly ministry, Jesus appointed 70 to go forth and tell of him and of his kingdom. They were given the ability to perform his work on his behalf, just as these men are appointed to assist Moses. As I noted, there were only two named elders, and thus they are representative of all of them. In the New Covenant, believers are called both Eldad, beloved of God, and Midad, beloved, throughout the epistles. They represent those who have been endowed with the Spirit. They were first given a special dispensation of it for the time of Christ's earthly ministry, but that eventually went out to all followers of Christ after his work was complete. The parallels are given to show us these patterns to lead us to understand that Christ is the fulfillment of the pictures found in Moses and in the Old Covenant. The flesh which God has sent, it is food indeed. It is sufficient to fill us and give us life anew. And when we have partaken, we will then follow at the lead of our Lord who has given himself for me and for you. 
The dew of heaven is left behind a gift for us. There's bread enough for all to eat. And this only pictures the coming Messiah, Jesus. Oh my, how delicious is this bread, so very sweet. Thank you, O oh God, for filling our souls in such a way. You have granted us life through your Son. And so we will exalt you through him each and every day until when at last this earthly life is done. Then we shall praise you forevermore, O oh God, as in the heavenly Jerusalem we shall forever trod. I recycled that poem from the earlier poem on the manna because it shows the contrast between the sweetness of what God is in Christ, pictured by the manna, and what we see in the quail. Our third thought today is graves of craving. It's verses 31 through 35. Verse 31, now a wind went out from the Lord. Ve'ruach nasa me'et Yehovah. It is the same word, ruach, used to indicate the spirit in the previous verses. It is not coincidence that the spirit and the wind are both mentioned and which use the same word in these passages. The connection should not be missed. This is a divinely appointed wind which is intended to instruct the people in no less a way than the spirit was also given to do. Verse 31 continues, And it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. The Hebrew here is highly debated, but what is certain is that there are a whole heap of quail, regardless of how it is translated. In this is a new and very rare word, guz. It signifies to pass over or away rapidly. The wind which arose came in and it came suddenly. The birds were completely caught up in it and they were deposited all around the camp. They were probably so exhausted from the turmoil of the wind that they would be easy pickings, hardly able to flutter away. The salav or quail is only found four times in all of the Bible. Once is in Exodus 16, twice are found in this chapter, and once in Psalm 105 while referring to this time in the wilderness. The word is derived from shalah, meaning to prosper. That idea comes from a root meaning to be quiet or to be at ease. The connection between the words is that quails are fat and slow in flight because of their weight, and so they're given this name. These would have blown up from the region of the Red Sea, but what is miraculous is that it occurred at exactly the time that the Lord said it would and in the amount that made his promise possible. A day's journey on either side and all around would be miles and miles of quail, worn out and ready to be captured, plucked, and laid out for drying. Verse 32, And the people stayed up all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. One thing we know for certain is that this is not a Saturday. Other than that, we can only speculate about much of what is said. The Lord sent so many quail that the people were gathering for as much as 36 hours. A homer is the largest measure used in the Bible, and it is used at times, such as the piling up of the frogs during the plague in Egypt, to indicate a massive amount. It's a superlative word. The number 10 is used several times in Scripture to denote a large, indeterminate amount as well. Therefore, the idea is that the one who gathered the least gathered great heaps. In their gathering, they would catch the bird alive, wring off its neck, draining its blood, and then adding it to their ever-increasingly large pile. The excitement of the gather, however, would be replaced with a sense of loathing soon enough. Like anything, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. Verse 32 continues, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Here's another new word, shatach, or spread. 
It is used of casting out grain or spreading out one's hands. It is used twice in this verse and just four more times in Scripture. In this, they took the quail and spread them wherever there was space for them to be dried out in the sun. Verse 33, but while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. The account goes directly from the gathering to the eating and its resulting plague. There are various ideas about when this occurred. Some say as the New King James Version, before it was chewed. Some say before it came to an end, meaning before all of it was consumed. No matter what, their cravings eventually caught up with them. Here the word plague is makah. It is one of the promised punishments first noted only weeks or maybe a couple of months at best before in the explanation of the punishments of the people which they could expect for disobedience. In Leviticus 26 verse 21, it said this, Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more makah, plagues, according to your sins. This was a foretaste of what lay ahead for Israel when they would walk in a manner contrary to the Lord. They lusted after the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, and they suffered because of it. So much so, in fact, that it says, Ve'yak Yehovah ba'am makah rava me'od, and struck Yehovah, the people, plague, great, very. The people would not only loathe the quail because of overindulgence, but because it had so greatly plagued those who died among them. Verse 34, so he called the name of that place Kivrot Hata'ava. Kivrot Hata'ava means literally graves the lusting. Kivrot comes from kever, a grave, or a place for burial. Ha is the definite article, and ta'ava means desire. That was first used and only used in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what it said. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant, pleasant, that word ta'ava to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. It isn't by chance that this is the second use of ta'ava in Scripture. Just as Eve looked to the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil instead of being obedient to the Lord, here the people have looked to the lusts of the flesh and not to the provision of the Lord. His manna, picturing Christ and the quail of Exodus 16, provided as a picture of Christ's death, was replaced with an unhealthy lusting for something more. In Exodus 16, they complained due to hunger, not having yet been given the manna. Further, that was before the law was given. Here, they complained despite the manna, and it was after the giving of the law. They left the Lord, and they turned their hearts back to Egypt, even after he had fully provided for them. In this, the people forfeited their lives as examples of what we too can expect in turning back to the world and away from God's provision, which is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 34 continues, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Here the verb form of grave, meaning to bury, and the verb form of craving are both used, giving the basis for the name of the place. The ava, or craving, is first used here, and it is the basis for ta'ava. The naming of the place is, as often happens for places and for people, the result of the surrounding circumstances. Verse 35, from Kivrot Hata'ava, the people moved to Chazarot encamped at Hazarot. As noted, Kivrot Hata'ava means graves the lusting or graves of lusting. Hazarot is the plural of Hatzer or village. Therefore, it means villages. 
the people were probably immensely happy to depart from their first sad stop on the way to Canaan. There the Lord burned among them, and then he caused the plague to destroy many. They're yielding to the lusts of the flesh and their inability to trust the Lord and to be satisfied in his provision was a memorable lesson. In the end, the lesson of the quail needs to be explained. The quail are mentioned in only two accounts, Exodus 16 and here. Other than that, the Psalms merely reference what occurred here. In Exodus 16, the quails came at a specific time of day which looked forward to Christ's cross. In the morning, they had manna, a picture of Christ's body given for us. It was a one-time and for all-time sacrifice, after which it was expected to be sufficient for the people. But here, they lusted again for meat, not finding sufficiency in Christ. This is why the manna was highlighted in verse 6. There it said, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Imagine saying that about Jesus. Our whole being is dried up. All we have is Jesus all day, every day. That's what's being pictured right here. They had come to partake of Christ in an unworthy manner, and they suffered because of it. And we see this happening in churches in the world. People get tired of Christ. How can you get tired of what never ceases? What is the source of our very existence? And yet people tire of it. The parallel is found in Paul's words to the Corinthians that we remind ourselves of every week while we take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Israel failed to accept the provision of the Lord. They failed to find sufficiency in him, and they lusted after those things Egypt provided. The scholar Kyle notes, God purposed to show the people his power to give them flesh, not for one day or several days, but for a whole month, both to put to shame their unbelief and also to punish their greediness. That practically matches what Paul said to those in Corinth. He said, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. The people complained and the Lord burned among them. They complained against the manna. Moses couldn't bear the weight of the people, despite the ruach, which was on him. The Lord took of the ruach, which was on Moses, and placed it on 70 elders. But Moses was excited by the prospect of all the Lord's people having the ruach. After that, the Lord sent a ruach to bring the quail to the people. The people ate the quail, and many died. When the ruach went out from the Lord, it brought what the people complained after. Those who were ungrateful or uncaring about the Lord paid the penalty for their disobedience. The lesson for us is to be careful what you ask for. James says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? These types and shadows from the old are intended to instruct us on our life in the new. 
Now, every one of the Lord's people has been given the spirit, and that spirit yearns jealously. Let us not crave what the world provides, but let us find sufficiency in Christ alone. He is the bread from heaven, and he is fully capable of satisfying our souls if we will simply accept his provision. Please turn your hearts to Christ and be satisfied in the Lord and have faith that what you have is exactly what he desires for you. This does not mean not to strive to be your best and to attain the best, but to do so knowing that the Lord is sufficient for you as you strive ahead. Seek him first and all good things will be added to you according to his wisdom, not yours. All right? I will tell you right now before I give you an altar call that our brother Doug once again outsurpassed himself giving us a painting for the uh, sermon this week. He has a picture of a guy pointing up and the people going back to Egypt and they're all in chains bound together and the very last one is a shoo-in of me. Here I'm being led back. He's warning even pastors, be careful there, Charlie. Don't lust after the things of the world. Here's Charlie being, I'm the last one in the train heading back to Egypt. I laughed when I saw that. And then he thought I missed it, so he sent me an email and says, oh, I got you. I had already posted on Facebook, you got me. So there you go. Listen, it is funny to make jokes about things like that when you're picking on an ugly guy like me, but it is not funny to reject the provision of the Lord. The Lord is fully sufficient for all of us. We all have our own troubles. We all have our own deficiencies. We all have our own weaknesses. You know, we, some of us, Paul says, I burn, right? We all have something that is in us that keeps us from a right relationship with God. And we can dwell on that or we can dwell on Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you something. If you have not received first Jesus Christ, then you are always dwelling outside of the Spirit of God. And you are always lusting after the things of the world because you're not looking to the one that provided all of the things of the world. Therefore, by default, you are looking to the things of the world. Please call on Jesus Christ, who is the source of all good blessings. He's the one that gave his life in exchange for our sins. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's not just, oh, Charlie lied today and he's going to die. That means that Charlie inherited what his first father did, which we read about in Genesis 3 a little bit, right? Our first father, Adam, did something wrong and all men fell in Adam because we are legally in Adam, we are potentially in Adam, and we are seminally in Adam. So the moment that we're born, we're already condemned. There's nothing we need to do about it. I typed up a uh, commentary on Hebrews today and I talked about the state of babies. Why do you think those nations around Israel sacrificed babies? They thought, oh, this baby's innocent. It can cover my sins, right? That will take care of my sins. Or some cultures, a, a young virgin. Oh, she's an innocent young virgin, so she can take care of my sins. The Lord rejects those. Israel started doing that and he rejected that. Why? Because babies are born with sin. Behold, I was sinful from my mother's womb, David says in the 51st Psalm. It is in us. It is an infection. I didn't need to teach my children to do wrong. They got it right, right off the bat. I needed to teach them to do right. The sin is in us. If babies were born without sin, as some people will tell you, guess what would happen after you sacrificed them? They'd come back to life because the wages of sin is death. It was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. Impossible, it says in Acts chapter 2. Why? Because he didn't have sin. So when he went into the grave, he took your sin with him. And because he had no sin of his own, he came out of the grave. So your sin stays in the grave. He comes out and now he has given you his 
righteousness. That is the doctrine of substitution and imputation. He is our substitute. He imputed us his righteousness. We imputed him our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. That is what's going on in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't received him, if you haven't called out and asked him to forgive you of your sin, John 3.18, everybody knows it, right? Very few do. Everybody knows John 3.16. John 3.18, you're condemned already. That's what Jesus said. Already condemned. Call on Jesus and he will take care of that. And you are saved. And then you can start living for God or you can be like 2 Peter 1.9 says, they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. God will not forget. He sealed you. He will redeem you. But what a sad existence to call on Christ and then to depart away from him. Please call on Jesus. I've got a closing verse for you from Psalm 78 once again, verses 29 through 31. So they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel because they lusted after something other than the Lord. If your highest desire is the Lord, he will reward you greatly. It may not be in this life, but he will reward you for it. We buried our brother yesterday, Chuck Pearson, right? Actually, we had a memorial service, but he devoted his life to the Lord. He was in a wheelchair. He was in an accident years ago. He lost his driving privileges. Somebody in this uh, church today told me they have now lost their driving privileges, and it's going to take time for him to get over that fact. And I mourn with him over that. But at the same time, I know that Chuck, lost his driving privileges his whole life, and yet he did immense amount for Jesus Christ. He continued teaching children over at West Florida Christian School. He did the music ministry. He did the, the Christmas lights ministry. It was wonderful. And God will reward him for every single thing that he did for him during that difficult walk of his. Please, please understand that you have value to God in the state that you are in. And guess what? We have tracks on the back wall waiting to be handed out. If you can't do anything else... You can take those for free, and you can hand them out. And guess what? They're superior word on the back, so maybe we'll get a new congregant someday, right? Or a nice email from somebody. Please do it. Next week is Numbers 12, 1 through 16. Being defiled is its own marked stamp. It's entitled, Unclean and Shut Out of the Camp. That'll be our 22nd number sermon. Now, all these things are following logically. We went from not wanting Christ, and then we went to what we went to today, and I didn't explain the meaning. I told you what the meaning of Hazarot is, but I didn't explain why it's in there. Well, we'll find that out, because everything is leading to a point when the spies go into Canaan. But before they go into Canaan, we have Miriam who gets leprosy, right? Every single thing is pointing to something that is going on in redemptive history in Jesus. That's why God put these stories in order, even though they're not chronologically in order. You'll find out. Keep sticking around and paying attention. You'll find out what God is revealing to us. I'm going to tell you what, chapter 13, and I'll say this during that sermon, almost broke my brain because it's a very confusing chapter. And I had no idea when I, it was two sermons, I had no idea why it was there. And I admitted at the beginning of it, if I got to the end of chapter 13 and could not figure out the picture that God was making, I would have had to just say something nice to you all and I'll give you a nice life application. And so I sent out an email to several people. I said, please pray. I have no idea what's going on. And next week, I got to finish this chapter. And guess what? You'll find out. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in a desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. 
He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. He will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. Nobody writes commentaries on the pictorial applications of these things. If you can't figure it out, you're on your own. Unless there's somebody out there that just makes stuff up. And that's more detrimental than anything. I never read those type of commentaries. There's a lot involved in this. Got a quick poem for you and we'll be done. Be careful what you ask for. So the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, as to you I now tell. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, this thing you shall do, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. So to you I submit and they shall bear the burden of the people with you that you may not yourself alone bear it. Then you shall say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. It was a culinary treat. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor 10 days, nor 20 days. It's true. But for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have despised the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we ever come up out of Egypt? These unhappy words to me, you were relaying. Then Moses said, the people whom I am among are on foot, 600,000 men. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Tell me that again. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to provide enough for them? So I ask, or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to provide enough for them? That is one major task. And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened a little or a lot? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Then he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle according to the word. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders, these chosen men. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad. Yes, Eldad. It's true. And the name of the other was Medad. And the spirit rested upon them too. Now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. Their gift of prophecy, they did tackle. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. By the spirit, they are being led. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, My Lord, forbid them. They are prophesying as by the spirit they are led. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them and he would this move make. And Moses returned to the camp. So we know he and the elders of Israel to the camp. They did go. Now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and they left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and on the other side about a day's journey all around the camp, yes, all around, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail, but not by the pound. He who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves in the camp all around. 
but while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, so the account does state, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a plague very great. So he called the name of that place Kivrot Hata'ava, because they buried the people who had yielded to their craving there. From Kivrot Hata'ava, the people moved to Chazorot, and camped at Chazorot. Yes, that is where. Lord God... We are even now in a wilderness, and we are waiting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it, and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, help us to be satisfied in you alone. Help us not to look to the lusts of the world, but to just look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to do this, and with that, surely we will be pleased, and you will be pleased with us. And it's in his great and powerful name we pray. Amen.